I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Sans Pants Radio. It's extra crispy. Welcome back to another episode of Movie Maintenance, where some topics just need discussing. I'm Damien. I'm Kat. I'm Gabe. And this week, we're talking dialogue. So basically, we're trying to discuss what makes good dialogue. So I wanted to start this episode, sort of talk about more surface stuff to do with dialogue, sort of, because there is layers to dialogue. And they each sort of achieve different things. Um, but yeah, first I want to talk about surface layer and then we'll, we'll work our way down. So to begin with, uh, I want to talk about voice, as in the voice of each particular character and how it affects the dialogue and how it affects you when you're writing the dialogue. So like, how much would you guys think about each character and their, the way they would speak when writing dialogue? I actually don't think about it very much. I don't know. I'm, I'm very much of the school of like, I think dialogue... Should, and it, you know, this varies depending on the project, but I think dialogue should be fun to listen to. Um, I really love dialogue. I kind of really don't like the whole idea that dialogue should be really realistic because if dialogue was really realistic, we'd have lots of ums and ahs and yeah. half-finished thoughts and it would be kind of tedious to listen to, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't, I probably don't focus heaps on like really differentiating the characters in the process of actually putting the dialogue together because to me, that should come through when you actually design the characters themselves. So... So, for example, um, with Boone Shepard, I think Boone and Promethea, you know, who are the two main characters, and there's a lot of scenes that are with them bantering. Right. They both are fairly witty, but you know that Promethea's going to be slightly more immature than Boone. Yeah. So you know that she's also a bit rougher. And that doesn't come down to me being like, oh, how do I manufacture this dialogue to make her sound a bit more rough around the edges and everything? Mm-hmm. It just comes naturally from being like, well, Promethea's probably going to say the more boldly stupid thing, but then that kind of brings Boone down to her level because he can't help but rise to her bait every right. time. And so it kind of stems from the characters, not so much from analyzing what I'm writing to make it fit the characters. Mm. And I personally, I'm inclined to believe that's the most organic way to do it. Yep. Like if you kind of know where your characters are, are at intellectually and personality wise and everything, I don't focus too much about, oh, she should sound more lower class or he should sound more dignified yeah. or he should sound rougher. Yeah. I, th- I think it stems from the personalities you've established more than. Yeah. yeah. So basically it's sort of, you would do the, the character work or kind of come into it knowing your character well enough that, that it should sort of come out pretty naturally. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Anyway, what about you, Kath? Is there well, anything? Yeah, I kind of agree. I think it comes down to, this is going to sound really weird, but like how you visualize 
your story in your head because yeah. I always picture people that I know mm. or, or, or maybe moments of someone that I know or like and sometimes it's even other characters from other movies. Yeah. And so I've, I visualize everything I write. So the language kind of it's it's not as like Gabe's saying, it's not super conscious. It's more comes through. If you know your character well, it comes out naturally, kind of organically. Mm. I also think it comes down a lot to intent. Like I look a lot at what my characters are intending and the language will come from there because what is what are they trying to do and how they're trying to do it. Yeah. And the language can really stems from there. If they're trying to kind of seem innocent when they're guilty, you know, mm. painting with broad strokes here. But yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? That will yeah. come Inher- the language will come inherently from what their intention is. Yeah. So this all leads into my my next question is like, because it is, it's also about the setting the characters in. So like the setting being like, literally if you're in a fantasy world, like if you're writing, you know, like a Lord of the Rings style thing, well, they're probably going to talk a bit differently or even, oh, sure, even yeah. the world of just like rural Australia for some yeah, other country. So again, like how much are you thinking of that while writing dialogue? Well, I think you'd be... Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think if you're writing somebody who's very much from a certain place that has a certain way of speaking or a mm. certain dialect or whatever, you have to absolutely be aware of that. Um, but, I mean, if you're writing a story of, like, two characters in an urban setting or two characters who are, like, you know, middle-class, you know, university-educated people having conversation, yeah. you're not going to think that much about differentiating their voices overly. I mean, mm. I don't know. The example I think of is, like, if you watch a Tarantino movie or a Martin McDonough movie, and they're yeah. probably my two – or an Aaron Sorkin movie – like they're probably my three yes. biggest influences in terms of dialogue. You and always have, oh, they're all very recognizable. You all yeah. you, <laughs> you don't mistake a Tarantino character or an Aaron Sorkin sure. character or a Martin McDonough character. Yes. But like if you watch Three Billboards, for example, Chief Willoughby and Officer Dixon don't speak the same way. Hmm. They both have that like rhythmic style that McDonough has, that like circulatory thing where they get fixated on certain ideas or thoughts and have moments of dialogue that kind of spiral around it. But they do actually, those moments tell you a lot about the characters. You know that Dixon's going to be a bit slower. You know that Dixon's going to be a bit simpler. Hmm. You know that Willoughby's going to be a bit more relaxed, a bit more serene. You know that um, that Mildred Hayes is going to be a lot terser. But they all sort of do have that McDonough wit to them and that McDonough that sure, McDonough almost sure. poetry to them. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it's a futile task to make all your characters sound starkly different because ultimately they're all coming from the same source. So unless you can literally come up with a different writing style for every individual character, yeah, yeah. you're probably not going to emulate realistic discourse, if yes. that makes sense. No, for sure. And we'll we'll get into that in a minute because I've definitely got some thoughts on, but also on how real at, it should sound. But also looking at like, you know, you mentioned like Lord of the Rings or like rural Australia yeah. or even like historical. I mean, I think that kind of thing, like language and 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 um, vernacular. Yes. Do your research. Yeah, for sure. Because yeah, when, yeah. when you're talking about things that are like contextual in terms of like period or place, mm. you know, that is very much like you can't just sit and be like, I think that people from the country say this word. Sure, like, yeah. Research, like find out what they say, you know. Yeah. And so and and if you do your research and if you surround yourself by material, you know, it'll you'll just pick it up. Sometimes I feel like when you're trying too hard, it can work against you. Oh, yeah. If you're yeah, trying too hard totally to agree. mimic mm. and you're like, oh, I got to throw in this word, throw in a bloody and it'll make it a yeah, show. It's yeah. like, no. Oh, what's it, you, up, me lord? Yeah. <laughs> you, the, the audiences, like, we smell it a mile away. We can yeah. tell. So I think it's more just like, 
actors, right? Yeah. They surround themselves, they submerge themselves in their character and their character's world and the character's thoughts. But when they actually get to onto stage, a lot of them, I suppose, not I shouldn't say all of them, but a mm. lot of them then f- just say they try not to think about any of it. And it's just kind of, it's like muscle memory. It's just right. kind yeah, of there. And then it comes through naturally how it would, you know, we don't sit around thinking mm. about how we speak. And I think writers have a lot of parallels with actors in process. And I, I like to do it in that way as well, where yeah, it's yeah. like, I think about it a lot and then I don't think about it at all. Mm. And what has kind of stuck with me comes out where it actually well, feels like it should. Yeah, yeah, it's like that whole thing of like you've built the engine, you've done the work, and now you sort of have to. It's like pulling back a slingshot and letting go. Right. It's like you've done the hard work of pulling back, yes. and when you let go, you just have to kind of go with yeah. it. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't know. I think it's a fine balance because like one of my all-time favorite books, The Book of Joe by Jonathan Tropper, mm. it's about a, um, a guy who lived in a small country town, grew up there, something really bad happened to him. He ran away. He wrote a book that savaged everybody in that town for what they did. And then 17 years later, his father has a stroke and he has to go back to the town for the first time. And it, it's a beautiful book. It's the mm. first book I ever cried in. It's mm. from uh, Jonathan Tropper who wrote Banshee, which is one of my favorite shows, yeah. but it's nothing like Banshee. Like it's a totally different thing. Mm. The problem I have with that book is that all the characters talk the same way. Mm-hmm. Like, and the heart of it's there and everything, but all of the characters are very intellectual, very witty, and use lots of big words, including, like, the grown-up high school bully who's now a construction worker. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, and, and they all sound very similar. And it's dialogue like that where you read it and it's like, this is somebody who's kind of a little bit too in love with their own wit mm-hmm. to the extent that you're actually compromising the characters because you want everything that comes out of everybody's mouth to be really to be profound and intelligent and funny and whatever to the point where it gets distracting. On what you were saying, Kath, about thinking about where people are from and everything. So I had a incident recently after my play, The Commune, that went on last November. And Commune is about a – it's very similar to The Book of Joe, actually. A guy who runs away <laughs> from his home except his home is a hippie commune in the hills – and then his mother dies and he has to come back home. Yeah. Sue me. I love a prodigal son story. <laughs> but, um, but he comes back and I was very conscious not to make the people in the commune speak in like a weird, affected, overly hippie-ish right. or otherworldly yeah, yeah. way because, sure. because I want it to be disarming. I want you to come back and the mystery for the audience is, is this place really that bad? Yeah. And if they're all talking in like, you know, ominous pronunciations of – strange, mythological, whatever, mm. then it's going to stand out like a sore thumb and it's going to sure. totally annoy you to their threat. You watch and you'll be like, okay, well, these guys are obviously crazy. Mm. Whereas kind of the audience surrogate character in that play who was his girlfriend who comes back with him, her whole journey is the whole time she's like, this. I've heard nothing but terrible things about this place. Is it actually as bad as he's making it out to be? Mm. And that's the question for the audience. And as it goes on, you realize that it is. But like somebody pulled me up after the play and they're like, oh, I really would have liked you know, the hippies to be weirder. Right. And I'm like, well, that's exactly what I didn't want to do. I wanted them to talk more or less like normal people to disarm the audience, to keep that question alive of, are they actually as dangerous as we think they are? Yeah. And then slowly peel back the layers. And see what you're doing there, Gabe, is you're playing against type. You're doing exactly what I was sort of talking about. You've just then turned it on its head. Like you wouldn't have known to avoid that kind of dialogue if you didn't know it existed in the first place. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, so you are still absolutely. using research here, but you're using, you're turning it on its head and you're mm. using research to avoid it. And I think that's just as valid as any other. Yeah. I remember I had a teacher once that said, you know, we all went to film school and we were like, we're going to do things differently. And he was like, cool, 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 cool. Know why offense was put up before you take it down. By all means, take mm, it down. Mm. Know why it was put up first. Sure, and I yeah. think that is really well, just important know the point. You really agree. So for you, Kathy, sort of was suggesting this. Is that what you do if you were writing eighteen hundreds English 
something, would you watch a lot of that at the time to try to get sure. the voices in your head? Like, Which is, it's funny when you're talking about really, you know, when you're talking about periods, mm. I'd watch a lot of, you know, films, TV shows, whatever. Yeah. But that in turn would be someone's interpretation. Yes, I'd true. probably try and read a yeah. lot for, of, of writing from that period. And, of course, I'd still have to modernise it because mm. it would be quite challenging yeah, yeah. to to decode but yeah for sure that's exactly what cool. i would do and then i wouldn't think about it <laughs> when yeah. i'm writing and whatever stuck with me would have stuck with me yeah i guess yeah, i mean yeah. i don't know i think about like when i went so i studied in america mm. i studied abroad for a little while and and everyone's perception of australians right was hysterical yeah yeah and i got accused of not being australian because i didn't fit the mold for sure. Because I didn't walk in and be like, yeah, how are you yeah. going, cunts? Like, yeah. oh, <laughs> yeah. pardon my French, everyone. But <laughs> yeah. you're Australian. <laughs> you know, I, I do. I mean, I think it would be funny to watch, you know, a compilation of bad Australian representation. Oh, yeah. All you need oh, to do is yeah. watch the... I mean, it's funny. I actually kind of like it. I but, agree. But you're like, yeah, you watch the Australian Simpsons episode. <laughs> Which is totally deliberate. But that, yeah. it's, it's deliberate, exactly. But that is an example of, of exactly not quite in the same for, with the same intention, but playing against type. Yes. They knew exactly that Australians were nothing like that, and that's why they did it because that's why it was funny, right. and they knew what they were doing. Yeah. yeah. But the, the thing that scares me about that episode is that Americans watched it and be like, oh, okay. Yeah, they ate that shit. I up. guess that's what Aussies are like. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so their like, toilets run backwards, which is not true at all, by the way. Most of what I write is, like, fairly contemporary. But, like, for something like Moonlight, mm. uh, which came out recently, the dialogue in Moonlight, I sort of deliberately base it on, like, for example, Ned Kelly's Derildery Letter from that time. So yeah. we're talking about, uh, for context, a Bush Ranger musical that I recently did. And so Ned Kelly, famous Australian Bush Ranger, he wrote this huge lengthy letter detailing all his reasons. And the Derildery Letter is a fascinating piece of work because you read it and it's so... It's so, like, clearly written by somebody uneducated and full of, like, grammar and spelling mistakes and everything, but it's got this beautiful way of writing where at sometimes it's almost incoherent, hmm. and at other times it takes on this, like, almost otherworldly beauty okay. of, like, the occasional use of a really powerful turn of phrase or a really big word or some really striking language hmm. in amongst more sort of roughshod, roughneck kind of talking. And even Captain Moonlight himself, like, I read a lot of his letters oh, before yeah. I wrote that, and what I loved was this kind of combination of being verbose but not educated. So, you know, your grammar's not there. There's going to be a lot of, like, abbreviations and everything, but then every now and then you'll have this explosion of, like, really surprising big words yeah. and stuff. Mm. And I, I found that that way of speaking really, really fascinating, where mm. it's like, yeah, you know, you're rough, you're in the dirt, you're a bush ranger, you're a criminal, all that. That doesn't mean you're not intelligent. Right. That doesn't mean that you're incapable of occasionally saying something really beautiful or really striking right. or really profound. And so that was a lot of fun to write and sort of the different variants of, you know, the the really, really rough, uneducated orphan characters who could be a lot more rough around the edges. Mm. And then somebody like up in the spectrum, somebody like Moonlight, you know, who will have a lot more big words and flashy, flowery turns of phrases and everything. So yeah, I think like definitely if you're writing something that's of a very specific place and time, like immersing yourself in the work of that time mm. or or examples of writing or dialogue or whatever from that time to kind of get a handle on how people spoke is yeah. imperative, I think. For yeah. sure. And I think as well you touch on something there about like the separation between education and intellect mm. and that a character can be educated. I mean, I love characters that are educated but stupid as hell. Like, right. I, yes, like, absolutely. That's such yeah. a satisfying character, you know, because there's an inherent arrogance mm. to a lot of oh, yeah. that, that, that type of kind of overly educated person. And I, I like that. And I think education, if we're talking about like we're talking about period, we're talking For about sure. place in All terms of, of research, I think education is, is another one to factor into the way that you write. Um, yeah. But, but it is separate from intellect, as Gabe, mm. you know, shows yeah. they're different things. Yeah. Uh, so another thing that you touched on before where 
all the voices sort of almost can't help but have a, a similarity because they're all written by the same writer. So for Moonlight, for the example you just said, you know, you were thinking about the different characters within that context. So they're, they're all going to sound a bit the same due to the the setting and mm-hmm. they're going to sound a bit the same because you're writing them, but you're still thinking of them in different ways. So I suppose like how do you avoid making it so all your characters sound the same? Because one example I think of is Josh Whedon where he's very quippy and comical and but if all his characters are quippy and comical, it's too much of a good thing where you're like it's it's harder to differentiate between the different characters. So is yeah, there is there I, anything you you do while writing where you like there's there's a similarity between them, but you still want them to sound well, distinct. I mean, it comes down to the character. I mean, so for example, in Moonlight, like a, a lot of the way the characters spoke. So instead of saying uh, there's a scene where you know they're discussing whether or not Captain Moonlight robbed a bank, and the line should be the captain wasn't there from the person who's defending him, mm. but the person says the captain weren't there that night, and it's little things like that, like yes. deliberate mm. grammatical mistakes, and they all talk that way because mm. these characters are all from a very similar background. But so, for example, Faulkner McDonald, who's the station owner and the antagonist, the one who's being basically held up by Moonlight's gang in the story, he's a very petulant character and he's a very snarky character. Right. And so even though the turns of phrase are going to be quite similar, what he's saying isn't mm. and his reactions to things aren't. So the the whole play, like his default setting is I'm angry and I'm petulant and I'm a little bit scared. Yeah. Whereas then you've got Tom Rogan, who's like the dumb sort of Moonlight second-in-command character who just sort of will make these big over-the-top pronunciations about how great and glorious Moonlight is, but they'll Mm. always be just a little bit dumb and just, like, a little bit not quite as good as when Moonlight himself is speaking. Mm -hmm. And he's, like, always, like, in quite a happy, jolly, good mood because he's completely in control here. And then Wernicke, who's the dumbest Brick's youngest gang member, who's just Mm. occasionally just, like, spouting out total non-sequiturs or defusing all the tension and everything. Like, she's never going to be using, like, a three-syllable word or anything. Mm. So that in and of itself will inform, even if you're using a very similar style for the characters, that's going to inform what they're saying and how they're saying it. Yeah, for sure. And what about you, Kath? Is there anything sort of, any tactics you have to really, or is it just a point of knowing your character really well and thinking, well, this is what they would say in that scenario where you take character B and they would react a different way? Yeah, I I guess it it comes back for me to to, to motivation. Again, I mean, Mm. I already touched on that before, but yeah, I think... You know, two characters that are similar, but they're. If I've got two characters in the scene mm. who want the same thing and yeah. have the same approach, I'd be questioning why they both are in the scene. If they want the same thing and they have exactly yeah, yeah. the same approach, yeah. how is that interesting? You yeah. know? So if I want to differentiate voice, even if they have similar vernacular, you know, I would look at their tactic. I'd look at what yep. they're trying to do. What is their cool. motivation? And and it as long as that's different, the language will inherently change for me. But that's how yes. I write. You know, which yeah, is yeah. it's different to. And that's, yeah, I agree with all that because basically I think it is about knowing the character and their wants, Mm. you know, their desires, especially within that scene and then about sticking to it. Because I know one mistake I'm definitely guilty of is where if I see a joke, I want to put it in there, like, because my brain will find a joke and put it in. But if I give that joke to the character that's meant to be dark and broody and all of a sudden they're throwing some quip out there. yeah. It's going to stand out like a sore thumb. Like mm. That character wouldn't do that. Yeah. So I think yeah, with dialogue, you definitely want to be aware of who your character is and what they wouldn't say as much as what they would say. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's also like circumstantial too because like – so I'm in the middle of rewrites on the final Boone Shepherd book at the moment mm. and there are moments where I'm writing scenes between Boone and Promethea and I'm like – what I love about Boone and Promethea is just like the big, long, quippy – the, uh, bickering the, the, the bickering yeah. and the sparring that they're constantly yes. doing. And I find that really fun and funny to write. 
And there's a lot of scenes in the third book where I'm writing scenes with just the two of them, but the quips aren't coming mm. and the sparring isn't coming and the banter isn't coming. And I'm like, why is that not there? But then I'm like, it's because the situation's so dark. It doesn't right. call for it. Like mm. what's going on, what these characters are going through doesn't call for quips. And if mm. I force them in here, it's just not going to sit right. Mm-hmm. And so now it's like I have to peel that aspect of the characters back and trust that the characters are strong enough and I know them well enough mm. to not only show them when they're having fun and they're sparring, they're getting on, but show them when that's away and they're vulnerable and yeah. what's underneath it, which is challenging when you're very used to writing characters a certain way, but I think really rewarding as well and helps yeah. you understand characters more. Well, yeah. And it would give more depth to them. Yes, absolutely. Which, is, which absolutely. is super important. Again, that's knowing your character and knowing, well, yeah, in this situation, they're not going to be quippy, even if though they are most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that, with them especially talking to each other, something else I wanted to talk about while we're on this surface layer is how much do you think about the sound of your dialogue, specifically like the flow between characters? Because I'm assuming you both sort of read your stuff well, out loud to yourself and the, the sort of the flow and the rhythm of conversation. So I always think back to when we were in film school and I think back to this exercise and I, it's, it's for a very particular reason it's stuck in my head. So pretty much in our first, in one of our first weeks and we were all at VCA, so you guys are all in the room for this. Yeah. One of our first weeks at VCA, we were told to go out and to record Mm. A, a conversation yeah. that we'd had that week that. Or, or that we'd heard that week. Yeah. And it was all about like an exercise in being like, how do people talk? How does real world dialogue sound? Mm. And, you know, we'd sort of been told to steer clear of having really showy, really Tarantino-esque dialogue or whatever. And so I remember we all went and did that. We all kind of came with conversations. And honestly, it was one of the most boring classes ever. Because <laughs> yeah. you're sitting there just listening to like really tedious conversations on trams. Like somebody's on the phone talking mm. to their mum or whatever. And it was just sitting there being like, this is not interesting I, I i get the point you're trying to make what stuck with me was um one of the guys in our class recorded carney and my first ever conversation yeah. oh, when we were really really awkward yeah. and we didn't oh, know each other at all <laughs> and i'm sitting next and i just remember being like and what what really stood out for me in this which was really funny was that the conversation i'd recorded was one i'd been a part of okay so it was me talking to my housemates they didn't know i was recording it yeah. i knew i was recording it so in the conversation i'd recorded i was coming off across as like very erudite very witty very on top of it right. very much in charge of the yeah. conversation <laughs> And in the in the conversation that had been recorded without my knowledge yeah. with Carney, who I had just met, exactly. it's like I'm awkwardly trying to tell him why Hannibal's so great. Yeah. And he's like <laughs> occasionally grunting and throwing in like one or two word answers. And I'm just repeating myself over yeah. and over again yeah. and saying um or ah uh, or trying to articulate things that don't need to be articulated. Yes. And it, it just, I sounded terrible. Mm. And because and he would have done a lot of listening. Oh, yeah. Mm. And yeah. I'm straight away just like. Oh my god, that's how I sound. <laughs> like that's how, and it was it was like a really that's sort the of real me. stark kind of revealing and really embarrassing thing that was yeah. just like I, I would have thought it'd be an unspoken rule not to record. Oh, yeah, class I, thought, I have to but, do, when it happened. Yeah. I was like, oh. Okay. See, I don't think I think I missed nice. that class. I, I was in the first one where we got told to do this, but I don't think I was there on the day. Oh, oh yeah, because I was going to ask, what conversation did you record? Well, I, well, I actually found it really interesting. So I did one with well, watching the footy at my parents' house. So it was my mum, my dad, me, and my brother Jono. And I wasn't talking much during the conversation because I knew my phone was there recording it all. But it was interesting because dad was sort of like just trying to be funny most of the time. Jono was trying to sound like he knew what he was talking about, but he doesn't watch footy. So he didn't know <laughs> what he was talking about, throwing out super generic comments. But then like there was conversation. It was interesting to see the different the different conversations going on at once. There was different levels of conversation. So there would be quote, comments about the footy, but then also there's an like, oh, I'll be talking about a certain topic and the thing that I found most interesting reading it back and writing it down was my mum was the one totally in control of the conversation. Right. Where, you didn't realise. Well, no, she's someone who takes a back step. Like the Robs are generally pretty sort of big personalities and dad likes a bit of attention and Jono's always got something to say and they, this sort of thing. But every time the conversation changed, it was mum directing it. And oh. then she was sort of like, 
okay, now talk about this and then sort of step back and let everyone else say their thoughts. I love writing characters like that, like mm. sort of some, it's a weird word, but like kind of like submissive characters that actually hold all the power because yeah, they're absolutely. letting everyone else yes. feel like they're in control. I love characters like mm. that. I love people like that. Yeah. <laughs> I think which is yeah. why I like characters like that. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. So it's, like, it's, it's a task Because it is actually doing. quite a female quality, I find, often sure. in, in that what I've seen in my life, it is quite a female quality. It can be, I should say, a female mm. quality. And, it, yeah, I think those kind of characters are yeah. exciting. I wish I'd read your, heard your thing. I wish you'd come to I'll still, I'll still have it somewhere. I'll show it Send to it to me, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. entertaining. I mean, it's a task worth, do- worth doing, but at the same time, like, I mean, VCA was funny because it was so contradictory because one person will tell you one thing, somebody else will tell you something oh, else, yeah. and we're being oh, told, yeah. oh, you know, your dialogue should only exist insofar as it services the character or the plot or the mm. character's intentions mm-hmm. and whatever. And then somebody else says, oh, you know, your dialogue should be as realistic as possible. And obviously mm. different people have different approaches because how many it's films do we see that have different, yeah. totally different approaches to it? But I, for, for, from a personal standpoint, I can't stand like mumblecore films or mm. anything that's trying, or like, you know, Monsters by Gareth Edwards yeah, yeah. where it's like yeah. heavily improvised and it's trying to kind of go for very realistic dialogue. Mm. I find it tedious. I like if I wanted to watch realistic dialogue, I'd sit and watch conversations, which I don't do because I don't want to watch realistic dialogue because I find it yeah. boring. Yes. Like, so I think... It very much, like anything, depends on the choices you're trying to make and why you're trying to make them. So if I'm writing Boone Shepard, for example, which is fun and zany and action-packed and everything, I will go for witty, funny, quippy, zany dialogue as much as I can. If I'm writing like a play like Heroes, which is over on Movie Maintenance Presents, cheeky plug, (laughs) that's something where the dialogue is kind of – I do a lot of that stuff where I like – and this is kind of, I guess, the McDonough influence where, mm. like, for example, I like my dialogue to sound like a tennis co- a tennis match yeah. where it's like you have one thing. So there'll be an exchange. Like, I think there's an exchange in Heroes where somebody says something like, do you know how old this person is? And he's like, judging by that line of questioning, you think I know exactly how old this person mm. is. And he's like, judging by that response, you do know exactly how yeah. old this person is. And he's like, I don't know how, ex- how old this person is. And it's like they have that same central quote, but dressed up to suit their own intentions, bounce mm. back and back and back and back. And I find that really fun and funny to listen to. And it yes. kind of... I think in a weird way lends clarity to the argument that's going on Mm -hmm. because you see what they're circling around and how they're manipulating that bit of information to Mm. suit their own purposes at all times. But like Heroes was played it because it was a black comedy and it was about two like reasonably witty and intelligent people. It relied so much on the dialogue and talking about like giving them different voices. So they're both quite smart and they're both going to say smart things, but one of them is quite rough around the edges and the other one's quite polished. And what I found really enjoyable was at the start – playing up the one who swears heaps and says fuck heaps and has all the abbreviations and the mm. other one who's quite controlled and quite dapper. And then as it goes on, switching it, like mm. when the controlled and dapper one starts to lose control, he starts swearing mm. more. He starts saying nastier things. He starts being rougher. And as the other guy gains control and you realize he's mm. actually had control the whole time, right. the rough facade drops away. And so that was a play where I went out of my way for the dialogue to be super stylized because I wanted mm. it to be fun to listen to. I want it to be, it's just two people talking. It has to be fun to listen to. Yeah. And I really wanted that to come out. But then I wrote another play, Chris Hawkins recently, that's like a very dark, very down to earth drama. And there are definitely moments of like bouncy dialogue, but it just didn't fit. Hmm. Like with the tone and subject matter of what that play was going for, it just absolutely didn't fit to have that kind of fun dialogue. And that's a case where you have to identify that having that kind of dialogue that I really enjoy writing would actually be to the detriment of the story. Mm -hmm. So again, it's like, know why you're doing it. With Heroes, it was because I wanted it to be fun and I wanted it to kind of live and breathe in the dialogue. With Chris Mm -hmm. Hawkins, it's like, no, I want to live and breathe in the characters and very much in what they're not saying rather than what they're saying. Yes. Yeah, again, it's like interrogate why you're doing what you're doing Mm -hmm. and know that having very 
flat dialogue for a play that's like meant to be quite realistic is probably a good thing. Yep. But trying to make your dialogue realistic, I think, is a fool's errand. I just yeah. don't think you're going to do it. It no, never should be completely. Yeah. It should. It should have the illusion of being real dialogue. That's it. Yes. yes. Illusion but, for sure. But totally serving a point, which we'll get into now. We'll, we'll dive down into that uh, sort of the deeper stuff, which is which is mostly subtext. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, like, basically, the, all this surface stuff, if you have just the surface stuff, is your, your character is saying exactly what they're thinking in exactly the way they're thinking it, that's on-the-nose dialogue. Where yes. if they're if we can sort of see the mechanisms at the back of the head, but they're saying something else to serve a purpose, well, now we've got subtext. Like, yeah. And, again, it's sort of what you were saying before, Kath, where, you know, they're, they're doing it for a purpose. Yeah. And, really, every line of dialogue should have a purpose. Which is different to real life. I think, you know, we're For talking sure. about like the difference between real life language and, and script di- language. Like in truth, like, you know, sometimes we say things with a purpose, but you know, I mean, we're all pretty chatty people. Sometimes we just talk yeah. and it's just like, it's literally like stream of consciousness and yeah. we're not trying to do anything, but you don't have the time no. or, you know, it's, it's just going to be messy to put that in the script. Every line of dialogue should have a purpose in mm. the script. I, I, so when I was in my favorite screenwriting professor that I've ever had, he said to me, I hate dialogue. You should treat dialogue like poison. And you were just talking before about okay. flow. I'm sort of going back. I'm sorry. But no, we'll no, continue. that's fine. He said, I hate dialogue. Dialogue should be poison. If you can say something like, and he was a screenwriting, to be clear, mm-hmm. not, a, not, a, not a stage, yeah, a yeah. script stage thing. Yeah. Um, he said, if you can show up visually, show up visually. You should avoid, po- uh, should avoid poison. I mean, yeah. you should avoid that, you know, <laughs> just for fun. But um, you should avoid dialogue as much as possible only put it in when it's absolutely vital and he was very passionate about this Mm. i think because he felt that dialogue was the easiest thing to fuck up in a piece of writing which you know i think there's some truth to it and i i really heard him when he said that and Mm. i really i've definitely i was always stayed with me i think it was always going to i lent into a more visual storytelling because i'm an artist so i'm a more visual that's just you know i'm kind of more interested in that kind of stuff but he said a way to know whether or not you're got a good amount of dialogue or lack thereof as mm. he would want you to have as he likes he says look at your script print it out physically look at look at the ratio of your big print mm-hmm. to your dialogue and you need to make sure that that big print 
is even if it's in lots of small chunks, he's like, you got to have visuals yeah. on visuals on visuals, which is very different to the way it was, style of writing you're describing, Gabe. And I just think it goes through. Like, I don't think that there's necessarily like one's better than the other. I think they're just very different attitudes. Well, I mean, it's a personal taste. Like films. That's it. And taste. it's the thing is yes. like, it's a divide. I have a lot of trouble straddling, particularly when I'm writing for screen, which I don't often do, mm. is that my sensibilities very much come from theatre. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like yeah. it very much comes from communicating a lot with dialogue. But in a weirdly contradictory way, the people who taught me that are Quentin Tarantino and Martin McDonough. Yeah. And it was their films more mm. than their stage plays. Like Tarantino was probably the first writer I ever knew who taught me what dialogue can do. And that was probably compounded by Aaron Sorkin when I saw The Social Network. And yeah. I was like, shit, this is awesome. And so I, I love, I love, love, love talky films. And I love mm. talky plays if the dialogue is fun to listen to and enlightening. But at the same time, I do see what you're saying, Kath, about succinctness and making sure your dialogue has a purpose. But also telling it visually but rather yes, than saying and I think that's important is made, his, his point. As for, like with subtext, I've got a theory on subtext. Like somebody once said to me that Science of the Lambs has the best introduction to a character or one of the best introductions of a character in film, which is Clarice Starling, because like mm. the whole first part of the film is completely non-verbal. So you've seen her running, you've understood that she's very determined and everything. Then she walks in Jack Crawford's office and he comes in and he says, oh, you know, I knew you from that seminar I did, you know, the one on whatever it was, and, you know, you grilled me pretty hard, you had heaps of questions for me, I think mm. I gave you an A. And without missing a beat, Clarice just says A-. minus. Hmm. And in a heartbeat, that tells you everything you need to know about her. But there's so much in there because like in that A minus, it tells you she's somebody who will never settle for second best. Mm -hmm. It's somebody who wants more. It's somebody who remembers little details. And it's somebody who is unrelentingly hard on herself. And that comes fruition later in the film where Hannibal's like, I'm going to give you the thing you want most, which is advancement, of course. Yeah. But I also think that characters very rarely say what they mean. So one exercise I do with kids a lot is Mm. that I get them to write a scene where one character has something the other character wants. And the other character has to get it from that character. So it could be like a toy or whatever. Right. And the other character has to get it from that character without ever asking for it. And conveying that without them ever coming out right and saying, I really want this thing, Mm. I think is a sign of good writing. However, I do think when you get to the end of the play or book or movie or whatever, I think when the character's backs are against the wall, when any of our backs are against the wall, we're going to be at our most honest. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the point where... Subtext is all very well and good in the early stages of a story. Mm. But when you get to the end, my theory is subtext should be ripped away mm. because that's the point where when the characters are at their most desperate, they're not going to be, you know, clouding or officiating what they're trying to say. They're going to say it outright yeah. and yeah. they're going to pretty much lay it on the line. And that's the point where their motivations, as far as they know their motivations, because mm. that's another conversation altogether, is like yeah. how much do they know what they're doing yeah. should just come out altogether. So, yeah, I, I think subtext is great for the most part Mm. but i do think when push comes to shove you're actually holding yourself back if you try to make every line clever and have like three layers of meaning in the most intense parts of your story but i think as well what you're saying i agree with what you're saying gabe and i think what works about that is that there is the subtext at the beginning and it's stripped away because that's Mm. the reveal i always think about when i think about subtext and and playing with subtext Mm. in a way that i think is really clever i love that lines one of my favorite lines of dialogue in um the movie drive where he's he's meeting with I don't even know they're like mob bosses they're dangerous criminals and he goes he's he's got like grease on his hands and the guy holds out his hand to shake his hand make a deal and he goes oh my hands are dirty mm. Ryan Gosling does and he goes this guy says without missing a bit he goes so am mine and that's stripping away the subtext yeah, yeah. and it's clever yeah. and it's fun little wordplay but I remember being like shit like that's so clever and cool and fun and slick and great but it, yeah it's just an example of yeah and I also think there's I'd like to think there's two types of subtext, which you as the writer need to know exactly what you're doing. But one is when the character is trying to be manipulative or conniving or just, you know, not not in a necessarily evil way, just the way we all do, where they're very conscious of, hmm, I want them to do this, so I'm going to say this. But then there's also the other type where they're saying things and the sub 
without knowing that they're giving away certain things about themselves through the subtext of what yeah, they're saying. Yeah, yeah. So it's good to know both, and especially as the writer, to be able to say which one's That's which. That's a really, really doing good point, Demo, because like the I'd say the A minus conversation is like another kind altogether. Like mm. I mean, sorry, sorry. That's the I'm accidentally giving the something away kind, because yeah. Grace Starling isn't being like, oh, I'm gonna like get something out of Jack Crawford by doing this. She's just it's just like a gut reaction she immediately. Can't help it. Says that, right. and, that, and, that and the fact so, that she can't help it mm. tells you even more about it. It's exactly. so inherent it's so to laid. who she is. It, it, she can't. She can't yes. not say. Yeah, but yeah, I think we, with with dialogue, it should be. I've sort of got a little bit of a checklist here. It, you should know why your character's saying it, as in either why they're trying to achieve it or what they're accidentally giving away. Yep. You should know who they're addressing, and like, and this will change. Like, it, like obviously, if you've got a character who's hanging out with their mates, they're going to talk a certain way. If they're at a job interview, they're going to talk a completely different yes. way. So you've got to know who they're addressing, the setting for it. You've got to know the function it's serving for you as the writer, whether it's pushing the scene forward, whether it's increasing suspense, instigating a change, you know, shedding light on a character's motivations. Shedding Just light there on for humor, shedding light on the theme for sure. And if it can, you know, you kind of want every bit of dialogue to hit one of these, but when it's really good dialogue, it's hitting a number of them at once. Yes, yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. And absolutely. That's, that's the challenge. That's the hardest thing about it's it. It's a solid list you got there, Damien. It's a solid list. No, it's a good list. It's, yeah. yeah. I'm impressed. But like, I think for writers who, when, when, when you're loving the dialogue, it's because it's doing all those things at once. Yeah, like, absolutely. Oh my, like, that's pushing the story forward, but it's telling you so much about him. It's, it's showing me the power dynamic between the two characters. You know, it's all that sort well, of really great stuff. What I wanted to, I actually wanted to mention this before, like when you brought up the Clarice Starling, um, oh yeah, the, the, like the Clarice Starling thing as an example of a character accidentally giving something away. Mm. The counterpoint I would suggest is Hans Lander's monologue at the start of Inglorious Bastards when he's driving into the French farmer and basically trying to get him to reveal that the, yeah. prison, that the Jewish family is hiding under the floorboards. And that's so good because the whole time he's in there being like, what's he trying to do? Like, yeah. why, why is he talking about rats and falcons and all of this? Mm. And then you get to the end, you realize that he's just like slowly eroding this guy's defenses yeah. to the point where this guy has no choice but to reveal it. And that's a, such a great scene, such a great speech, because it tells you so much on so many levels. It tells you exactly who Hans Lander is mm-hmm. and everything he does for the rest of the film. I mean, kind of pales in comparison to that, but is completely in line with the character as established in that scene. Yes. It also speaks a little bit like to the themes of the film. It also, like it's, it's a very, very effective, very, very clever oh, piece yeah. of writing. When people tell me, oh, Tarantino's a hack and he just is in love with the sound of his own voice, I'm like, no, he's not. Like, no. look at that scene. Like, the guy's clever. He knows exactly what he's doing. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and that's it. Like, that is that is well-crafted dialogue where it should be stated, you're not going to write that on the first draft. That's you coming back, second draft, third draft, fourth draft. You're, you're, it is. You're, you're crafting it from the core yep. of what you originally written in the first draft. And you, you might even write the first draft with no subtext. You might say, here, hey, here's what I'm thinking. Yeah, here's my response to that. And then you can add the subtext in in later. Yeah. But yeah, but that is, that's an amazing, amazing example other, of dialogue. I think the other key is like to be, and there's something that I'm really, really guilty of and I'm trying to be very aware of nowadays is, sorry, I know I'm referring a lot to my own writing here, but it's like, no, that's, that's the example I've got. Yeah. So <laughs> in terms of understanding how something works from the inside, there's not much I'm more of an authority on than this. Yeah. Yeah, it's one thing, like, is repetition is a really, really bad thing because I know for a fact that, like, if I've got a theme that I'm really excited about, I think mm. it's, like, really sexy or really cool or whatever, or if, like, a character's making a point and I'm kind of in love with the character's voice, I have a really bad tendency to, like, reiterate points again and again and again yeah. in ways that it's just, like, in diff- slightly different ways and in ways that in normally in the first draft I justify myself to myself as being like, oh, but they're revealing something slightly different here or something slightly different here. Sure. It's like, no, they're actually not. Like, yeah. And this comes back to what uh, your tutor said, oh, your lecturer said, Kath, about... Pairing things back. Whatever, I don't care. (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, Being pedantic. (laughs) Because I disagree with you about dialogue because I like talky things. But yeah, it's that whole thing of like, 
if something doesn't need to be there, get rid of it. Yeah. If you've yeah. made the point elsewhere, and but you haven't made the point strong enough there, so you're mm. making the point again, it's like, no, make the point stronger the first time. Yeah. yeah. Like, just pe- get rid of anything you don't need. Just know why everything For is sure. Know the role of everything. Yeah. And your script, chances are, is going to move along really nicely. Yeah. yeah. And I also think it's about trusting your audience. Like, I know when I kind of make that same mistake where I'm like, reiterating things I'm, like, I'm basically like did everyone get it yeah. did yeah. you all get it yeah. it's like absolutely I, I mean every time I give someone a piece of my writing to read I'm always like did you get did you get that bit like did you get what I was saying and, mm. and it's because you get you get paranoid that you're like sure. oh, was it not clear enough yeah, and you've got to trust that like people are as smart as you you're not yeah. like some genius sitting around like people get it you right. know and it's not yeah, trust them. Trust yeah, that they'll get it. Exactly. And they will respect, they'll appreciate being trusted. But then I yeah. also know, like, and this is, I'm thinking back to the work of some of the writers when you at VCA, and they wrote, like, really, like, obscure scripts that just, like, you'd read it and I'm like, either I'm really stupid mm. or this is incoherent. <laughs> because, like, and it was, like, it's hard, it's hard to explain now. I mean, we're thinking back three years, but I remember reading this one particular script where it was, like, there was an unquestionable authority to like the way it was written. Like I didn't question that the person knew why they were doing what they were doing in the dialogue. Hmm. The thing was that I didn't know. Yes. And yeah. it's like, it, it again, it's a very tricky balancing act to be like, trust the audience will get it. But if you haven't done your job properly, it won't be clear. Yeah. So again, it's like pairing it back and making sure that your dialogue is always doing its job to like convey your point without making it obvious. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah. very hard. Oh like, yeah. Yeah, and because you've got to you've got to make sure your point is in there. Like sometimes you can try to be so clever that they're they're saying something that's like not even related to their point, but you think, oh yeah, but the subtext is there. Yeah. Yes, and yes. It, again, this only comes through practice where you can learn yeah. these skills. I always get really afraid that I'm like I'm like it'll be really clear if my actor says it like this, right? And that's when parentheticals. Because I got told, I got told you 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 can't put parentheticals in. That's that's oh, the director's really? job. I put them in. I put them in because I, in. I know a lot of directors that are like, well, if I don't want them, I just delete them. Like exactly. they don't, they don't find them offensive. So I I put them in because it's like a control thing. Mm. I'm like, no, I want to like get- italics. Yeah, I'm yeah, a fatal yeah. italics user. Sure, like, yeah. but that's because I want people to know where the emphasis is. And yes. sorry, but it's like I I like putting italics in there because in my, and maybe this is because I'm a playwright because I've heard a lot of I've heard a lot of actors read my dialogue. Mm. I know where I want the emphasis to be, and it's the same when I'm writing prose. And it's like, well, I'm going to put in those those inflections there in the shape of an uh, a word that's italicized or whatever mm. because I want because that's how I want the dialogue to be said. That's mm. how the dialogue's meant to be said. And I've heard actors say dialogue completely wrong because they don't. Sometimes actors just need that little bit of indication. If they can say it better a different way, then sure, go ahead and say it better a different way. Mm-hmm. But at least I'm making my intention as clear as I possibly can. Yeah. And I don't think italics are offensive. I just don't. No, and if no. the director... For, for if, emphasis. Yeah. yeah, like I said, if the director thinks that that's us doing their job for them, yeah. they'll just ignore them. You know what I mean? Exactly. Not, sure. If they love the script, they're not going to not work with the script on the grounds that there are parentheticals. Yeah, like, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. Like, you love the script, maybe want that annoys you, just get rid of them. All right. Well, I've got a few more things. We could talk about this all day, no doubt, but we've just got a few last things to sort of finish up on. So one thing I wanted to talk about is exposition. So obviously, especially with, with film and plays, so much of your exposition needs to come through the dialogue. But obviously there's also the fine line of yeah. this is clearly people are just saying this for the purpose of exposition. So is there anything that you do to sort of to try to sneak it in without it being obvious? Exposition is hard. I struggle with it. I really do. Gabe, what do you do? Because I don't have a good answer other Um, than struggle. (laughs) Mm. I I try to make it work for me. 
Because I always think, you know, one of the best examples I've ever seen is Quint's Indianapolis speech in Jaws. But I mean, I know Jaws, Jaws is like such a masterclass on so many levels. Like, you know, in that scene, you know, they're all comparing the scars. It tells mm. you so much about the characters. And there's mm. a bit where Brody lifts his shirt and there's a bullet oh, yeah. wound. And he just lift, drops it back down, doesn't say a word, but it suddenly mm-hmm. just tells you so much about him. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if right. you can, and same with the A minus with Corey Starling, if you can have that kind of succinct exposition where you can suggest something mm-hmm. really effectively without having to spell it out, that's probably the best way to do it. But I mean, Quint's speech is literally spelling it out. He's telling the story of something that happened 20 years ago, mm. and that's there to like, show his motive and everything but what it does on so many levels is that it it tells you why quint is the way he is yeah it makes you sympathetic for him right in time for the final showdown because you understand why this like salty colorful kind of angry emasculating old prick is Mm. the way he is you see you realize that he's gone through something other characters can scarcely imagine it also raises the stakes because it shows you exactly what sharks are capable of Mm -hmm. right at the point where you need to know because these characters who you care about are now being thrown into that situation it's it's just a it's a stunning piece of writing that works on so many different levels yeah and it also brings all the characters together yeah Mm. yeah like it creates a bond between them because suddenly quint shares something that you know he doesn't share mm. all the time. And it's kind of also a fascinating history lesson in something that people didn't know about. That speech actually brought attention to the Indianapolis incident, yeah. which was actually not something well known about at oh, all. Really? That's yeah. So cool. that scene is working on so many different yeah. levels and it's pure exposition. Right. So, I mean, it can't literally be, okay, the audience needs to know this information, so we're just going to convey this information as dryly as possible. Mm. I think if you can make it speak to the theme of the film, if you can yes. make it speak to what the character's going through, if you can make it advance the plot in some way. Mm-hmm. Serve multiple um, purposes. Exactly. Yeah, and that's right. a, that's make a, it earn its place in the script. Exactly. And that's a chunk of pure exposition yeah. that does all of those things yeah. at once. Right. And I think as well, I love, you know, the the bullet rune one because it's a visual exposition for me. If yes. I, like I, yeah. you know, I said it before, but if I can do a visually, especially exposition, I mm. will. Um, I mean, every screenwriting course, I think, does the, you have to tell a piece of ex- exposition, but they can't say it. And so you've got, I mean, I I've seen so many people cheat and like look at text messages on yeah, phones. Yeah. I'm like, that's not, yeah, that's, that's cheating. Not, no. um, I had to do one where we had to talk about time passing. Okay. Um, you, you, but we couldn't say time pass. But I, I think that what Gabe is saying as well is like a best way to learn how mm. to how to do something, especially if you're like, oh, I don't know how to do it, is look at how other people For did sure. it. And also look at how other people did it poorly. Yes, I was just going to say that. Has yeah, anyone absolutely. seen that movie, A Dangerous... Is it A Dangerous Method? With It's it's such a bad movie. With Kira Knightley and uh, Michael Fassbender. No. Because it, at the time, I'd just done a, that class where I had to talk about like how to show time passing. There's a scene and he leaves, exits the scene, cuts to a new scene... And like six months has supposedly passed, mm. or however long a period of time has passed, and he walks into the room and he goes, "I'm back." And oh, that was the no. exposition to show oh, the time no. had passed. And I was like, "Wow, it was so bad." And for years afterwards, I would make jokes to my friends. I'd just be like, "I'm back" all the yeah. time, just to like establish <laughs> that I'd returned. Yeah, they're like, "No, we can tell." Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's definitely it's definitely important to know what not to do. Like <laughs> yeah. another one that you, you see way too often, like way too often in in big movies, is where like. Someone would meet up with someone like, oh, when was the last time I saw you? Oh, was it seven <laughs> years ago? And you're yeah. like, oh, my God, what are you fucking okay, doing? We've yeah. just, we just gotten sober that day. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, I wonder if oh, that's yeah. important. Was it your daughter's wedding? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> well, one thing so that, um, that it's, it's, a, it's a funny example because it's one where I think the intention was right but the execution sucked was like when Force Awakens came out and it was just like, what What happened in the last 30 years? Like, right. we just don't know. How do we get to this place? Mm. And J.J. Abrams later was like, oh, we wanted to do what the first Star Wars does where we only tell you the information you need to know. And I'm like, yeah, but the first Star Wars was the first installment in this series. So, like, the first Star Wars does exposition brilliantly. Like, it doesn't mm. tell you how we got to this point. It doesn't really yeah. tell you what the Empire wants or anything. You just know they're bad guys. There are little mm. hints dropped in dialogue when the characters are talking about other things. Yep. 
And, you know, and with Luke, like, instead of Luke sitting down being like, oh, I want to go away from this place and go on adventures, you just have him going up and looking at the suns and looking wistful. And that tells you everything. Yeah, tells you everything yeah. you need to know. And then, like, Force Awakens made the mistake of being like, oh, yeah, we're just going to tell you nothing. We're not going to tell you at what point Kylo Ren's home. We're not going to tell mm. you how we got here. We're not going to tell you, like, what's going on with the New Republic. We're not going to tell you how the First Order rose. We're not going to tell you any of that stuff because we want to create that same sense of mystery. It's like, yeah, but there's also a sequel where the last mm. time we saw these characters, everything was great. We kind of need to know how that changed. Right, yeah, And yeah. Last Jedi didn't really shed any more light on that, you know? Mm. But I don't know, I, I think back to, like, one example I've got, I've actually, like, I brought a couple of screenplays in just to kind of look at while we're doing this. And one yeah. thing is in Bruges, where this one great line where Harry and Ken are talking on the phone, mm-hmm. and they're just talking about Bruges. And it's just like, you know, bands where Ken just cut, Harry just keeps asking Ken. So for context, those who haven't seen in Bruges, if you haven't, get the fuck off this podcast and watch in Bruges. <laughs> yeah. but, right so now. for context, in Bruges, there's two hitmen, they're in Bruges. So there's Harry, uh, sorry, Ken and Ray. Ray's the young, impetuous one. Ken's kind of the older, slower one. Ray goes out on a date. Ken's home alone, waiting for Harry, their boss, to call. So Harry calls, and he just keeps asking all these really pedantic questions about Bruges. And it's kind of funny because it seems really absurd because he's asking about every little thing that Mm. they're doing, like every little impeccable detail. And Ken's kind of in the middle of it being like, what the fuck? Like, why are you doing this? And then he kind of keeps driving until, like, Ken suggests that, like, Ray isn't enjoying himself. Mm. And Harry kind of flips out and, like, just completely goes crazy. Like, you know, you know, it's, it's a fairy tale fucking town. How's, how's a fairy tale fucking town not somebody's fucking thing? And it's, like, it's really funny. Yeah. And then it kind of, like, and Ken calms him down. And then Harry says this line here where he goes, ah, good. I'm glad he likes it there. I'm glad we are able to give him something. Something good and happy. Because he wasn't a bad kid, was he? And then the conversation just continues where Harry says, right, take down this address. You're going to go here. You're going to get a gun. Mm. He'll give you the gun to do it. And suddenly you realize, fuck, that's what this is. He's calling to give the order to kill him. He never once says, kill him. He never once says, I need him taken out. He just suggests it through that. And then you realize that the reason he gets so angry when when it's suggested that he's not liking Bruges is because he's like, what, the one last thing I did for him before I I have to have him killed. I gave him this gift. He hates and then before that, the reason he's so pedantic about everything is because he actually, he legitimately wants, in this weird twisted honor that character has, mm. he legitimately wants him to have a good time. Yeah. And that's kind of the first time in the film that you really hear Harry. Mm. And it tells you so much about his character as well. So when he comes in, you have this weird, like, you like Harry, but he's also the antagonist. Yeah. And it's so good because, like, literally, they're just talking about Bruges. Mm. They're just talking about the town. And it's funny and it's absurd and it's drawn out. And then it changes in the drop of a hat with one bit of dialogue and suddenly the context of what you're watching and the meaning of what you're watching clicks into place so beautifully and effectively. And that's that's how you do exposition. Yeah, that's how you do it. Well said. Yeah, great, great answer. Well, I think we're pretty much out of time. There's so much more we could talk about, but maybe we'll do, we another, do part two. another dialogue part two episode. <laughs> so on that note, I've been Damien. I've been Kat. I've been Gabe. If you've got any thoughts, questions, opinions, uh, you can contact us at moviemaintenance at sanspantsradio.com or on Twitter at mmsanspants or on our individual Twitters. I'm at Midday Pajamas. I'm at Kath Atkins 5. I'm at Goldbergmoser. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support the show, why not become a member at sanspantsplus.com and get early access to our shows, a bunch of exclusive content, and much, much more. That's sanspantsplus.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.